oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology, and with me is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. Philosophy is a paradoxically deep and yet encompassing discipline. It can be dangerous and easy to get lost in, much like traveling across an ocean. Yet within this ocean, there are stable currents and trade winds that can reliably take a voyager from place to place. These are the pillars of philosophy that inform how we approach inquiry. Today we'll be setting sail on one of these currents, sure to cover a great distance before our journey is over. But just because a route is well-traveled, it doesn't mean there aren't surprises in store. Today we're talking about axiology. So axiology is a, a topic that we covered way, way, way back <laughs> in our first episode. We were looking at, you know, sort of the, the four pillars, and these are arbitrary. There's there's lots of people that say philosophy is made up of more or less. There are of, lots of columns in the temple. Yeah, right? yes, <laughs> yeah. So, so there's lots of mainstays, but um, axiology is one that's considered... Um, how would you put it? a load-bearing pillar? Yes. <laughs> you can't just knock it out and renovate. You you're really that. good with the metaphors today. For that introduction, on we're just on. This, you're on. This so, is so axiology very important to uh, to looking at at philosophy. And if you want, you can go back and listen to that first episode I did. It's hard to listen to for me because, <laughs> like, we've we've been doing this so long now. I actually our third anniversary was December eighteenth, so we're not yeah, we're not so. too far past that. But I listen back to the first one. I go, ooh, man, this is this is a little hard to listen to. <laughs> but um, we we spent that episode looking at the four different pillars, and it really didn't give each one their sort of due diligence. So no. we'll um, we'll go back through, and you know, it may not be consecutive. We might throw in different episodes here and there, but we'll try to get through those four pillars again, looking at each one a little bit more in depth. So for as a refresher, there's probably plenty of audience listeners who said, first episode, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> Just kind of jumping in and looking at different different categories that either piqued their interest or they picked it up, um, you know, after the, the first episode. So what is axiology? It's... Axiology is the, the science, there's theology, so to speak, of the, of the study of two related things, value and valuation. The, the first being roughly that which we find of worth in an object, as an example, we'll move way beyond objects, but an object of, for its own sake, if it has an intrinsic worth. And valuation is the process by which we establish ways to figure out why or how that thing has worth. Okay. So, yeah, we, and, you know, we covered a little bit of that in the first episode. So we're going to dive deeper in this episode mm -hmm. and we're going to ask what do we mean when we say something has value? <laughs> well, yeah, we, we you you refer to this as a current, and I remember in one of our talks this year, uh, we were discussing the change in uh, the fact that it could happen that the main current in the Atlantic stops and what the result of that would be. Well, to follow the metaphor, what would happen if we stopped deciding value at all? If we stopped using the word? I've been pondering that a little bit because it has become so messy, muddy, and complicated from where it, it, it began. Axiology is a term that started, was used in Really, it's the first time at the beginning of the 20th century, late 19th century. And value was essentially limited to the capitalistic idea. What is the worth of something that you own? How do we determine its worth? But then it exploded into theology and aesthetics, art, music, 
not just economies, but sociology, psychology, as we started opening up all of these fields, as as we woke up in the 19th and 20th centuries, essentially, um, value became associated with all of that. Now, that's not the question you asked. But no, uh, so, but that's that's a really interesting segue into an answer. So which, let's so so remind yeah, me what is yeah. no, there was a lot of you brought in a lot of history there that I I wasn't aware of. I didn't know that axiology was that recent. This sort of yeah. this sort as of, a term, right? I mean, right. value discussion goes back to Plato, but but as a its own yeah, entity. Yeah. yeah. So what do we mean when we say something has value? So in the axiology. Um, discussion as you you alluded to in in the the initial um description yeah it's sort of um s- split right off the bat into an intrinsic and an extrinsic sort of yes topic right yes it it, it does so what is it, so let's go with the intrinsic if we, what does it mean to say that something has value which which causes us not to be tautological, so we're not defining value by using the word value. So worth is an alternative. There are all, all kinds of synonyms, but is it because it gives us pleasure? Is it because there is something good about it? There, there, and this is where the debates and the splits happen because there are philosophers across the past century who've said, no, 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 we... Good and bad is not a shouldn't be part of the discussion. It's does it have worth or doesn't it? Not the judgmental part of mm. of it. And so, what does it mean for something to have value? It's a very complicated question, and we have to we 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 should start by saying, all right, let's suppose the definition of of worth is monetary. That that gives us a, a predication. That gives us something to point at, to lead to? Or is it that it gives us pleasure? Or is it that it is a a necessity to us? The air has value. Uh, It has monetary value because people sell oxygen services for people who are medically uh, debilitated. So far, people aren't just selling us oxygen so we can breathe every day, as if you could somehow marketize the atmosphere. So it's a different discussion than what's the value of a dollar bill? Right. Which is really where it started. Yeah. That, that last one reminds me, there was a science fiction story about um, sort of post-apocalyptic where like the earth, I think the sun disappears and then the earth, you know, steadily sort of disintegrates and like the atmosphere starts snowing down onto the planet and they have to go crawl outside their caves to collect the atmosphere so they can bring it inside to breathe and that's sort of so there thing. will be some value in out the size of your bucket right yeah yeah uh, so yeah that's a pretty good um description of the extrinsic and intrinsic so kind of money is definitionally an extrinsic value because yeah. it's its value is in um achieving means to another end right mm-hmm. whereas an intrinsic value that's a little bit harder to define because like you said there's some debate in formal philosophy about what gives something intrinsic value there's there's sort of hedonists who think that okay well it's it's pleasure right, right. however you may define it like what in, in intrinsic values, pleasure, like doing this podcast, right? We might think, oh, okay, well, you know, maybe, maybe we, we think, well, we're trying to do something for people. We're trying to educate people. We're trying to do this sort of thing or whatever. But a hedonist would say, well, no, really, you're doing the podcast because you like doing the podcast. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and the hedonist would be right, but it's not exclusive. We also want to invite people in the conversation. So if we didn't enjoy it, we wouldn't have gotten up to, 70 episodes or whatever it is, something like that. Now, we wouldn't have passed our anniversary. Uh, and we do sound better because I've listened to that <laughs> because the engineering has gotten so much finer. I'll put that on you. But, but let's, let's pick something odd. Uh, let's, let's, let's go away from money for a second. Let's talk about punctuation. Okay. <laughs> Because I've been reading a lot about punctuation this week. It just happens. (laughs) 
because there because language is fluid. We've talked about philosophical issues related to that. Language changes, rules change, and we haven't had formalized spelling and punctuation for much longer than 150, 180 years. <laughs> so it's not like it's a, a, an old thing. And right now, a, a, a very unusual thing seems to be happening. At least for me, it's funny. It's, not, it's strange. It's fascinating to watch. Uh, apostrophes are disappearing. Mm. Now, apostrophes have been problematic for people for some time. It's one of the things I had to dwell on most when I was doing surface editing with my writing students. And, and, and conceptually, it doesn't seem that difficult to me. But I'm an English major, right? <laughs> but 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 what is the value of an apostrophe? Uh, that's now one could say, okay, are you saying what is the use of an apostrophe? Well, we could do that if we associate use with value. Apostrophes might be interesting to look at and not have any value at all, or they might have a, a use, and we figure out why we're using them and then why we decide not to. Now, I know this is putting people to sleep at the other end of this thing, <laughs> listening because it's an apostrophe. But I think it's fascinating because we are devaluing it. We are essentially, through our, our, our texting, our electronic modes of communication, normalizing the disappearance of it. Those of you who are studying, do not get the idea you're going to get full points for something if you don't have the apostrophe in place, if you're in college or school. But... Maybe in a generation, there won't be apostrophes. And and informal or daily conversational use, it's already going away, as is the, the, the period. Yeah, I was reading an interesting article about that the other day saying that um, younger generations are finding the period aggressive. So if you're texting and you use a period at the end, it gives the implied tone that you are displeased with the person at the other end. So they said either yep. either don't use punctuation at the end or, or use an exclamation point because a period is just too mean sounding. Yeah. And, and that boggles me even as I laugh and find it fed. I'm saying, okay, I'm following this. I'm interested. I'm still going to bloody well use periods because <laughs> and not as a point of, of, of arrogance or, or ending a, a conversation, but ending – a sentence. <laughs> it still works for me. Uh, but but the value, you know, and, and it's important to think of the small things when we think of value. Money is easy. So if we want to really freshen this up, we think about things that we normally wouldn't think about. Now, the value of, of apostrophe is uh, perhaps slight to most people. Litigiously, though, in the in the in the courtroom. Uh, apostrophe misuse has led to uh, cases being thrown out, uh, large amounts of money being uh, awarded or not. Uh, did you have you read about some of these? No, but I can imagine, given on which side of the yes the apostrophe is, it can determine whether or not you're talking about a single person or a group of people. Yes, there was a, 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 a company won a defamation suit because the person said the employees, uh, no apostrophe, employees were being harassed by the company very in these very specific ways. And it meant the employee apostrophe S, but that wasn't there. And therefore, hmm. the company won big. Uh, against the person. So uh, yeah, language is powerful. Punctuation yeah. is powerful, even though we don't, you know, you could look at a vegetable sand and people, you, you might drive by and it says vegetables, apostrophe S. And it's not needed for a plural, but if it confuses people, it'll, it'll go away about dashes instead of periods. So back to value. Does an apostrophe have value, apostrophe have value in itself? Or is it only in its use? And if it's not going to be used anymore, has the value diminished because of collective decision-making? Uh, not formally, not gatekeeping decision-making, just a use of it or disuse of it. And, uh, I, and I'm not attempting to provide an answer to that because I don't think there really 
is a definitive answer to, but it's an example of what we talk about with valuation. Yeah, it's it's like you said, it's that idea of where, what is the value, and where is it? I think with, I think some of it's contextual, especially with the period, right? I think if I'll be honest, I'm guilty in text messages of not using the period occasionally for the reason, especially it depends on who I'm texting and what's what's being texted. Um, but there are times where I overuse a po- or um, exclamation points in text. And if I'm sending something that I think might be ambiguous, but it seems excessive to put an exclamation point at the end, sometimes I will leave no punctuation depending on the person. I would never do that in a written document, right? And you couldn't. If you had no periods in a written document, it would be almost impossible to read. But in a text message where something is generally one sentence long, occasionally, depending on the audience, depending on what's being text, these sorts of things, in order to not have a tone misconstrued, I'll say, well, you know what? I'm just going to leave it. They know where the sentence ends. They can see it. There's, no, there's nothing following. And, and that's, <laughs> that's really interesting because that's not, that's not the context over decades from the, the, the primeval slime from which I emerged. <laughs> right? and, so, and I'm just thinking on the side, James Joyce, because you know one of the reasons that Ulysses was such an unreadable text for so many people and explosively innovative in his time for stream of consciousness writing because the punctuation was just exploded. Uh, all right. So, but I was talking to my wife, who was roughly my age, and and I was surprised to find that she uh, said that she uses exclamation marks much, much more because exclamation marks indicate a friendliness or uh, not uh, asserting an absolute end to a conversation. She's found that in in of various kinds of writing that that happens and and I was stunned because I thought for me exclamation points or exclamation marks are more traditionally hey I'm excited uh they also can be used to get out of my face you know yeah, or something. Yeah. so so the idea that apparently is very much out there and growing that that exclamation marks are not uh, of, of that value. The value is changing. Yeah, you're giving uh, a character to an exclamation point that it doesn't have. The same way you're giving a character to the period that it doesn't necessarily have. You're, you're giving them tones that don't and, exist. And emoticons. And and I was relating to her that what's the value of an emoticon is something I, the last few years of my teaching, I stumbled onto this. We had lots of conversations in various classes, public speaking and and uh, and philosophy, because I'd say, well, what does this mean? And I put like the 10 emoticons on my point to this. And people were using all kinds of different words with all kinds of different shading for just the smile face. And then I, this was not a brilliant moment. It was just, a, oh, okay, but there are different phones. I wonder, are the emoticons, do they look the same on different phones? And in fact, they didn't. So I was having people, we were looking at each other's phones. So this smile has teeth. This smile doesn't, depending on whether it's a phone that was manufactured by X, Y, or Z companies. Or they bought this certain set. Or somehow it's translated differently. And so again, the diversity of, of what you would take to have an implied meaning, the implication is messy. So the value of the emoticon at one and the same time, for me, diminishes because it muddies the waters of the conversation, but extends because it broadens interpretation. Yeah, and and when it comes to something like that, a face, even if it's not a human face, can be interpreted several different ways by different people. And there's psychology studies that bear this out, right? You have people... Um, and they'll be shown the same types of faces, gradations, right? Gradations of emotion. So um, here's somebody's face who's disgusted. Here's a neutral face. Here's a smiling face. Here's a frowning face. And you ask people what these faces mean. And people with varying degrees of, of mental illness, and I'll even put that in quotes, because normal people will have variations of being able to identify what the faces mean, Right. What is this person experiencing? What is this person feeling looking at this picture, right? And everybody has a different idea of it. So this idea, this conversation with value becomes very interesting because to me, there's definitely a contextual element, right? And my my recording computer that I have here, I have a CD player in it. 
which is a very rare thing, right? Yeah. But for somebody who's recording, um, it's very useful for me to burn CDs and then try them different places um, that don't have Bluetooth connectivity or they can't be emailed to and listened to on an MP3. Um, a wave file is an important um, medium for recording music, but it's too large to be emailed. If you try to email wave file, you'll get that that note in the email. Well, this is too large, so it's going to be a, a Google Drive link or a, an iCloud link or something. Yeah. One of these different things, which you can use, but it gets a little bit more messy. So what's the value of a CD? Well, almost non-existent anywhere other than in my little niche experience. So this idea of value, right, mm -hmm. and looking at something and saying, well, what's the value of it? It's sort of difficult to just give an overarching value of something based off of all the contextual um, situations it may um, encounter. There was a, an object I was <clears throat> – I read a couple of pieces about that this past week too. Uh, I didn't realize that, that there's a, there are a whole lot of finds of uh, – these little dodecahedrons. Hmm. They look something like out of a Captain, the old Disney Captain Nemo movie, that kind of style of, of – and we don't have a clue what they were for hmm. so far. <clears throat> so this is a fresh spot for what's the value of it? Well, I don't know. Well, what, what was it used for? No, okay, but – Gee, does it just have a value now in the 21st century toss? Is it visually pleasant? Is it intriguing and gives us conversations? For me, something that is of value is something that can cause conversation. Yeah. But is it worth or, or, or is its value just determined by the, the, the elements that make it up, the pieces of metal? You know, a cell phone value to, to, uh, a kid uh, in impossible conditions going through a, a pile of, of discarded uh, cell phones being worked through because they weren't properly disposed in whole underground economies where people managed to barely survive by taking out the, the dangerous elements out of a cell phone to sell. That cell phone has radically different value to the people in that egregious situation than it does to me sitting here, oh, look, I'm going to read about the new Spider-Man movie. Right. So we've went on a big tangent. Yeah, we did. That we've, <laughs> we basically established um, the complexity of this, this the idea of value, yep. which is where axiology comes in. So let's look at axiology. Um, I think the first question I would ask was, is there a formal overlap between intrinsic and extrinsic value? In the field of axiology, do these things, are they always looked at separately or is there an acknowledgement that something can have an intrinsic value and an extrinsic value? I think most, uh, I, I think it vacillates, but there's an acknowledgement that, it, that both have to be discussed. Uh, some, <clears throat> I mean, there are lists and lists of, of the philosophers who are taking various positions. And that's not necessary to the discussion at the moment. But primarily, both of those are discussed to some degree, not necessarily equal degree. Right. Yeah. And again, I think that that's, that's contextual, right? So money is almost 100% in extrinsic value, right? Mm -hmm. Now, maybe if you're a collector and you have some old Roman coin or something, maybe it has, but then it, it, that's putting the value judgment on you as opposed to the thing itself. Unless the thing itself can be sold at auction and bring in a whole lot of money. <laughs> yeah, but is that still an extrinsic it's extrinsic, I think, if you want to, if you want to, if you want to make money from it, you're saying that there's an outside value to this that is given to it by other people. Mm. Whereas for you to just display it on a wall and say, "This is a, this is a fascinating artifact," and and that's enough. Uh, that's the more. In Does it have value itself? It did once upon a time. Does it have that value now? No, but it has fresh value if other people are saying, ah, this is worth thousands of dollars. Yeah, so there's there's the – and again, there's that contextual intrinsic value, right? Yeah. Maybe that coin's worth a million modern dollars. Yeah. 
But at the same time, maybe it's just a little piece of copper and the copper has a value itself. If you melted down the copper, it would be worth a couple cents, right? And maybe to you, hanging it on your wall and just seeing it and thinking about the historical context of it and stuff, it has an intrinsic value. So there's several different types of value that are happening in, in that one sort of... But um, this is why it's gotten messy and very interesting, because if we were in 1890-ish, we would only be talking about demelted down for copper. Mm-hmm. Now, some people would be collectors and, and, and numismatic persons of various kinds that would say, oh, but it's, it's historically relevant, as you just said. But primarily, value would be, what's it worth? Yeah, and some of, you know, I've, I've got a few coins that are considered valuable, um, 1943 pennies that are made out of steel because all of the copper was being used to make bombshells for World War II. So for a very brief period of time, they made pennies out of steel. And now those are considered very valuable. But really, they're just tiny pieces of steel, right? Mm-hmm. But it signifies an, an era of time and an era of difficulty in the United States and in the world as a whole. It's sort of a, a time capsule of that in that little um Peace. It is. So then this is where we talked about teleology last time. This is where teleology comes in. What is the purpose? Is an object of its own or is it only discussed for its purpose? Mm-hmm. And, and axiology goes hand in hand with it. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, you and I go back and forth about this a lot. Teleology without, without, and I mean, we occasionally speak the formal term, but right. we always have a back and forth because I'm always looking for that that answer. Okay, well, what is the use of this, or what does this mean? And you're you're always coming back with, well, that's not necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> but teleology is about the use of it, so you're right to push that. <laughs> Sometimes I'm just but goading. <laughs> but it's just one aspect of it, right? It is. So when when did the field of axiology develop? I think you sort of alluded to it. it it's not that old, right? It's it, not that old. It was it's starting to be just uh, discussed in um, at the moment at that moment, uh, turn of the century, radically uh, broadening the the, the discussion uh, up to and including the idea of goodness or badness, which people uh, some eschew and say, "Nope, we're not going." Let me let me read this from one of the encyclopedias. This is one of my hardbound encyclopedias of philosophy. It's not the Stanford, but it's all right. Von Wright, who's one of the people who was shaping all of this, distinguishes instrumental goodness, a good knife, as an example, technical goodness, a good car driver, utilitarian goodness, good advice. <laughs> Hedonic goodness or pleasantness, a good dinner, and welfare, the good of human beings. He also mentions moral goodness, but argues that it is a subform of utilitarian goodness, and on it goes. But I just, just as an example, in the space of a sentence, <laughs> it had a period <laughs> of all kinds of levels, or, or rather types of goodness, and that's not even implying moral goodness. So what is the value of a a carving knife? How well it carves? How pleasant it looks? Um, How well it it works in the hand of somebody who's doing the carving? A good chef? and, And if you start just slowing down again and and opening that up, I think then you really get into where uh, the depth of the oceanic current of axiology is. Yeah, absolutely. And you didn't, it, it again brings the value value of, of language to the forefront mm-hmm. and specifically exposes the messiness of, of English, right? With this idea of good and bad. I really like that, that example of good and bad in relation to a knife, right? So if you say it's a good knife, well, is it, is it a good knife because it cuts well, or is it a good knife because uh, it's made good moral decisions over its life? You know, like, right. What does good mean here? Right, right. And, and like you alluded to, the idea of good and bad is um, is messy in itself in, in axiology. And we'll talk about that a little bit at the end in the speculative sure. portion. But yeah, there's several levels of, of, of 
what it means for something to have value and in what context in to itself so part of that is um sort of this monism and pluralism argument you want to you want to explain that for monism implies one one basis one structure one one view that dominates others and the pluralism is very much what i just read all the different ways that you can approach determining or or just saying something has value i think the determining part is has been much more substantially um, i'm soaked in it uh i could never remove the stains of that from from being an educator and i'm not sure that's where this is where i should go right now with this but to, to the monism is here it is we're t- this is the one thing that we're talking about with this object this person whereas the plural is oh we have to bring all kinds of templates and and filters before we can adequately determine the value so would like platonic idealism be a form of monism yes so it's sort of saying there is one carving knife out there the, and the ideal the carving knife, of it, the essence of it and, and the carving knives that we all own anywhere around the planet are just uh, you're in, measuring in, it in you un, yes yeah you're measuring it against this they're, one they're, thing they're this shadows is the, of the thing yeah this, so this is sort of the essence of a carving knife and you're you're going to give the value of your carving knife based off of how it measures up against this ideal right whereas pluralism says well there's again it brings in sort of that situational context right Okay, well, first off, we don't know if there is an ideal carving knife out there. But even if there is, you know, how it carves, uh, you know, a piece of roast versus, um, you know, a piece of wood versus all these other things. You know, there's there's several elements that go into it. Mm -hmm. You know, how your handle is shaped is going to is going to depend on the value of the knife in a given context, how thin or thick the blade is, how whether it's the point is sharper or the edge is sharper, all these different things will give you a different value to the knife in the context that it's in or the job that it was meant to perform. Mm -hmm. But regardless, there's several things that give it value versus just one ideal thing. And that's the essence of it. Mm -hmm. Is that sort of the, that's, that's it. Okay. Um, what have, what have been some of the major developments in axiology over the course of its development? You know, I, for me, the idea of it stretching into the, the further it got away, it gets away from a capitalistic value, the better it is for open minded and deep thinking. <laughs> Um, I say that with a bias about capitalism, even though I live immersed in the capitalistic culture, and I'm certainly part of it. But uh, I think that when, and you, you can't really pinpoint a, a, a day or a month or when this happened, but but when it extended even into theology, I think that's fascinating. So you've got something that spans the talking about dollar bills to talking about God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so when did this so when did that kind of happen, right? It seems like without knowing the specific history of it, to me it yeah. almost seems like there was a Pandora's box moment, right? That we had these discussions of value and then the field of axiology came about and all of a sudden things where we sort of had blinders on, we said, well, what happens if we try to ascribe a value to these things that we didn't think about before and then it led to this endless I think of it as a big bang moment really yeah as with so many other things that took place in the early early the borderline between late 19th and early 20th century the worldview shift that that was taking place because and this sounds almost tropish to say but because of uh, intensive industrialization uh, because of 
ur- urbanization because of the movement of people from country to city, uh, because of the scientific explosions. I think that it, that all emerged, and then people started sorting. And so, yeah, when Pandora's box opens up and you catch things in the net and you try to pin them down and dissect them and look at them. It, it it didn't all happen at once, but within such a small human time frame, it, it kind of did for me. So do you think some of these things were related? <clears throat> so these things were definitely related to other things that were happening in the world. So probably um, like Darwin and the theory of evolution would have would start to give people some thought of value in regards to religious ideals or, you know, observations of the universe or like you said, yeah. industrial. So, yeah. So, what's the what what is the value of religion if the one of the basic tenets of how humanity came to be is radically empirically able to be questioned? Well, that's a deep valuation question that that for, is formally discussed in that time frame we're talking about is still discussed. <clears throat> and for some people, disgusted is more the, the word they might use. But for those of us who like to just ponder all of these things, it certainly was a shift. Uh, that's not the same as the valuation of, of a dollar or a pound or a yen, but it is not entirely dissimilar either. You know, what what is that? What is a dollar worth now? We we talk about often of something that costs fifty cents. This this is done almost all the time now. Something that costs fifty cents in nineteen thirteen uh, would actually have been thirteen dollars and twenty five cents now. I, I think that's done to provide an understanding that is based on monetary value, assuming monetary value is still prime. For a lot of people, it is still prime. What can a dollar buy? Uh, So if we see what it could buy then, we see what it could buy now, we try to understand what people's circumstances were, how they were living then as opposed to now. That can get mushy and that can be, the, the attempted accuracy can also mislead about living conditions. And, 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 for me, that's the important thing to be able to talk about value that really wasn't talked about terribly much. Um, right. Okay. So, can we talk about good and bad within the realm of axiology without involving ethics or deontology? Um, if one is talking about good and well, there's two levels of good and bad. If one is talking about whether something is morally good or bad and asserting the, that duality, then you can't avoid ethics. Um, if you're talking about whether something, whether someone is a good driver or a bad driver, to reference that earlier example, that doesn't require morality. That requires a, a rubric. Uh, like as we'd measure a a test or a paper or something in education, I mean, you know that all too well because of all the, the studies you've done in education. There, there are there are moral issues. When I was starting to teach, uh, right, coincident with that that time, there was a vast push in American education, uh, a movement that was called values clarification. And I don't know if you've read about that in your studies, no, but I it was it was, uh, it was monstrous to me at the time. I will confess, and it, and I still find it untenably um, self-serving for an ideological system. But the but the essence of values clarification was that you would take students through a, a, a filtered exercise to help them determine what was right and what was wrong in something that happened in a short story, <laughs> what was right and what was wrong in something, a piece of, of art that you looked at, what was right and what was wrong about a case. Here's something that just happened on the street. And, and, and what could have been an open 
discussion, even for me as a, just a beginning teacher, I, 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 my spider sense was tingling. Yeah, yeah, and it does, it does for me too. But I can see why it'd be different for other people, right? Because I think for some people, you think, okay, well, this gives um, children the opportunity to identify right and wrong. But I think if you're an educator or if you're somebody who's thinking about these things critically, it's not one word pops into my mind, and that's propaganda, right? Yeah. I think, well, if you think about all of some of you know the the really terrible um, political organizations that have existed throughout history, kind of the number one goal of what they did was try to reinforce their ideals onto impressionable minds so that things wouldn't be questioned. You later. see, and there's and that's exactly it. you've hit upon it, and that's why it's integral to this discussion. Values clarification. Clarification uh, suggests that you want clarity and understanding why you do what you do. Great. But the but that's good or that's bad. And the the expectation of teachers to then bring the ideological, the nationalistic, whatever related lens to caution those students. As if, well, there is the right way, and then there is the the definite article, the right way and the wrong way. That's what it was spilling into. That's what it was in the, the textbook, the, the workbooks that were spilling into all of the classrooms at the time. <clears throat> and that's just one example. Um, so we, you know, we, and then we, and then there is that propagandistic historical, deeply important discussion that we just re-entered or entered perhaps for the first time meaningfully in, during the pandemic, uh, in which uh, the term American values or uh, the term family values, which had, uh, so many of these related terms seemed to imply that there was one small cluster of things that that was about totally disintegrates in, in in favor of a complexity that people don't really want. Yeah, so we've spent a long time laying the groundwork, but now we're starting to get into the importance of axiology to our everyday lives, right? And I think a lot of what you've just talked about is this prevailing monism that's sort of handed down from a top-down level, right? So. It, it would appear that um, governments and educational institutions and these sorts of things are implying that there is an ideal form of um, family values or historical interpretation or whatever there is, mm -hmm. and that the goal of education is sort of to get students to recognize this monistic value rather than explore different facets of, of sort of a pluralistic value based off of context and based off of these things. Yes. And that creates some of the issues that we have today, right? Like um, these conversations surrounding um, things like um, founding fathers, right? right? And the complex issues that we face when, when examining founding fathers and saying, okay, well, they did a lot of good things and they did a lot of horribly terrible things. Well, if you're approaching it from a monistic value standpoint, that sentence doesn't really make sense, right? Mm -hmm. You can't say, well, the ideal founding father of a country is both uh, heroic and brave and adventurous and, and, and um, you know, groundbreaking person and a, a terrible, <laughs> you know, somebody who took advantage of things in their position and started out from a place of privilege and, and made a, a terrible situation for an entire group of people. Yeah. You can't really say that if you're saying, well, this founding father <laughs> is the ideal of what a founding father is. Right. Unless you're willing to take it apart and say, all right, there was a human being who was very flawed, who had the opportunities to do something that could have radically altered and improved the situation of our country at the get-go and, and didn't. That doesn't mean you're throwing them out. It means that you are recognizing that there isn't that monistic. But, this but it also, can, but it can, but right? It, so and that's, can. that's part of the problem today is that you have a, a group of people that are saying, 
nope, this is a founding father, so it couldn't have been deficient. And then you have another group of people saying, this was a deficient human being, so we're going to cancel them. Mm-hmm. Neither one of those is the correct approach to take when you're examining something. And then we go from the top down to the bottom up. And by that, I mean, let's, let's take this idea of the family and all of the ideology and the valuation of the nuclear family, which I can't help but smile every time I say it. We know what happens with nuclear power. The nuclear family, well, two children, a boy and a girl and a mom and a dad. Well, there's the perfect family. Really? Really? Why? And people ask that question. That does, it's not saying we devalue it. It's, is that the only model? Of course it's not. It hasn't been. <laughs> people desperately want it to be. Why? Because it's simpler for some people, maybe, but not for everyone. And so axiology, the pillar, it's not like we're 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 clinging to the pillar and saying, I'm closing my eyes. I'm going to be like the, the, the cowardly lion in the Wizard of Oz. I do believe in ghosts. I do, I do, I do, I do. No, you don't cling to a pillar. You, you see what it does and how it works architecturally. And then you say, hmm, maybe there's another pillar. Or does this pillar need some some more work <laughs> or some pointing up or whatever it happens to be? And so we've got the top down. We've got the, the, the family up. How many of the valuations of family? Well, family comes first. Really? Always? In every circumstance? Why? Is that just to protect our genetics? Is, is it what if our family is essentially uh, more or less egregious and, and 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 many many people in life build uh, and i'm talking about maybe even extended family but maybe even the nuclear family what just because it's a family doesn't mean that it's a wonderful organic entity and axiology allows us to open that pry that open in the 20th century say sociologically what works and what doesn't in families and how many different family models are there and is there value in all of those models yeah and that's that's the hard part of of doing philosophy but it's the important part right is to be able to look at it, the nuclear family and say okay well this is the prevailing model that a lot of places have adopted so there must be some value to it but also, we're going to look at it critically, and we're going to see, um, you know, going all the way back to um, human ancestors, right? Um, human ancestors were, were not monogamous. If you look at um, human tribes that are untouched by um, modernity, a lot of them are not monogamous. Mm-hmm. Um, there tends to be sort of a tribal way of raising children rather than a, a family unit. So there's something that goes completely against the grain of the nuclear family that stretches back to the origins of humanity. You have to say, okay, well, so if this is where it is now and here's where it was then. There must be some value in them. The same way there might be value in a period, <laughs> in yes, a text message versus a, a, a novel, right? Yes. So, and yes. trying to suss out, well, what is the value and, and what, where are we putting it? And why does something work in one context and become problematic in another context? And you asked me what I thought was the, one of the most important, I'm paraphrasing, but um, developments in this. And, and this is it. Because when axiology comes to the place that it can say, here's, here's what's, uh, here's a good, here's what's regarded as a good. Even if it's regarded as a good, doesn't mean it necessarily really is. And so we start to question that. And we might arrive at, yeah, that's still a good, or no, our, re- our re- regardation needs to be <laughs> reassessed. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and, you know, within philosophy, and this is something that I've said several times, and I, I stand behind it. You're not going to enjoy philosophy if you're somebody who doesn't um, stand for ambiguity well. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm just somebody who's who's built for ambiguity, right? Like, if I go to ask a question and I find out that the answer is three more questions, I get excited. Yeah. And if you're not that kind of person, then, then these <laughs> discussions will make you very uncomfortable, right? Yep. But it that that's what 
that's what looking at axiology and value systems will do to you, especially in the realm of aesthetics, right? So we've talked a lot about um, religion and, and in English and grammar and things that I didn't think we'd talk about in the, in the episode. <laughs> aesthetics is one of the ones that I thought we would talk about some. Do you think that you can give a value to art, to artistic expression? I, I'm a collision of things on that because I'm a, I, I make art. I look at art. I've taught aesthetics, high level honors classes. I, there are so many lenses, but the, if you reduce it to the essence, do I think that a piece of art has value as art because it was made as art? Yes, <laughs> because it's it because. Uh, but if I start saying because, then I'm then I'm applying the valuation onto it, aren't I? But there's room for endless art in this world. It's not a, a, a <clears throat> what's the right term? Limited resources. What am I thinking? It's, it's, oh, there's no scarcity. <laughs> yeah, there's not an economy of scarcity with art. There would be for people who want to value it and say, well, now I own this. It's got to be worth money. But to make the, the process itself is the good because it takes a human being into a, a, a different zone. As you well know, with novel writing and, and with music making, and with painting, with model making. Uh, so to me, art, aesthetics, there is the value in itself. Then there are all kinds of overlays and superstructures of, of artistic evaluation. The evaluation of John Dewey would say, what do we prize and how do we appraise it? <laughs> and so the appraisal of art based on everything from color combinations to of materials to proportionality to composition, that, those are things that can be assessed. If if with with my art teacher when when I do a sketch and she asks me to appraise it, you know she doesn't use that word, but we have a very intensive discussion about what do I see in it and what do I think that I have done and and when in the what do I see part I can see well oh but I I was attempting not photographic reality but a proportionality of composition I missed it on the chin there. <laughs> Okay, does that bash it? No, she she doesn't love that, and and it's not a bashing; it's a self correction to say, "All right, let's let's." How do I approach looking at a face and rendering it, even uh, rendering the life in it, and 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 that's an appraisal, and so there are all kinds of ways we can approach it, and and there is not one definition of art that's going to work for everybody, and we acknowledge that, but I think there's an intrinsic value for me in the process of making the thing first and foremost, then the thing itself, because someone bothered to make it. And then we can do the filtering. Yeah. And this is really where it gets into, you know, we've talked about monism and pluralism and intrinsic mm -hmm. and extrinsic and stuff. I think that it, it sort of be starts to become clear that there is you, there is a pluralistic and then, and there is an overlap between intrinsic and extrinsic because there are valuable works of art that are just sitting in storehouses that rich people have snatched up as an investment, right? Yeah. They've bought them and now they're not displaying them or enjoying them for what they are. They're just hanging on to them until they're worth more money to sell them. That's an extrinsic value. So you can give that to, yeah. a, to a piece of art. Um, and it's certainly, it's, it's plentifully obvious that, that this does happen. There are works of art that are have more extrinsic value than others. Intrinsic value is is more difficult, but I think you did a good job explaining it. Right? There's there's some value to the artist. Um, yes. And I think you know philosophers would argue what where that value stems from, whether it's hedonism or whether it's um, you know what what causes yeah, I, that. I, I, yeah. But. But it exists. Um, and then there's also a value to an audience. And I think that lots of times, especially, you know, I think it happens with art and what I think about music as well. It's kind of like that steel penny, right? There's 
something about the time frame and the context of the art that makes it important too, mm -hmm. right? Um, mm -hmm. Certainly, if somebody were to do um, a painting of a, of a Campbell's soup can nowadays, right? <laughs> Not many people would say, oh, this is a great work of art, right? It was something that had to happen in a certain period of time. And, you know, the same thing with a steel penny, right? If, they, if the U.S. minted a steel penny right now, people would probably say, eh, okay, whatever. <laughs> you know, with music, um, you know, it, people certainly people use distortion on guitars all the time. But it's not the same as when Hendrix first did it, right? right? And if people do it now, it's not as celebrated as it was in the '90s. There was there's this ebb and flow, and there's these things that um, it may in our in art that something may be innovative at one point, and it may be mainstream at another point, and it may be passe at a third point, right? And so there's there's a historical context, there's a sociocultural context, there's a value to an audience. There's a value to an artist. There's an extrinsic value. It, there's all kinds of values, right? Yeah. I, I feel like trying to escape pluralism is is really hard to do. In it is, and and I think it's really it's it's unnecessary to try to escape it. I think what where we, I think what flummoxes people, <clears throat> and I'm going to take it back to education again. You, you uh, Ultimately, uh, an English teacher, a composition teacher, uh, even a music teacher, an art teacher, ultimately one is uh, required by a system to evaluate, engage in valuation of whatever was created or whatever's in the process of being created. A system requires an extrinsic uh, pseudo-empirical rendering of a judgment. Many of us who were trained at a certain time, and, and it's still true for, I think, a number of younger teachers who think much about what they're doing. I, I, I know that from my... <laughs> I've related to a few. Uh, you, you talk to a student about what they're trying to accomplish, how they're accomplishing it. This is the process part. Um, here's where I see it going. Is that where you wanted it to go? <laughs> Whether it's writing art, whatever it happens to be. Uh, and, and ultimately, an evaluation is can be as simplistic as of the piece itself, which isn't really simplistic, or it can be as more complicated as the piece and all of the work that went into making the piece. Hmm. So it, it, you know, sure, you could just say, "Well, that 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 essay is a ninety point two. Well, that's ridiculous, and I always found that that to be ridiculous. Ultimately, when people say, "Well, that's a subjective judgment," damn right, <laughs> and it is because it's based on the subjectivity of my experiential breadth, which is not infinite and which is not godlike. It is based on my ability to determine how you've gone about a process and what you were trying to say, how how that seemed to have been said. All those rubric things, and the word rubric is so lovely now. Yeah, and this is this is super important um, because we've talked about, you know, we've talked a little bit about cancel culture. We've talked a little bit about founding fathers, these sorts of things. This is sort of the big silent one in U.S. Um, culture is the intent um, of education from an institutional standpoint, but also from the student standpoint, right? Which is there's there's been a, a trend towards and an, almost an overwhelming um, feeling that What's happening in education is students are forking over large sums of money for a piece of paper that entitles them to a job. And that's the value they're putting on it. Yeah. And that's not that's, that's not it. That's not a good way to get a value out of out of your education. Um, but they've been but the context of the social context has been to reduce it to a totally capitalistic exchange such that students feel empowered. Uh, in fact, uh, privileged and, and prerogatively driven to say, well, if I got an 89 on this, uh, what do I do to gain that extra point? Which is totally not the question. Hmm. The question is, 
what have I done? 89 would be really super good. I've done good work here. No, I can only be excellent because only excellent matters in the country, which is utter nonsense, but people follow that. All right. What can you do? Well, that means that you think you can just find two periods, put them in that weren't there, and somehow now you got a 90, so you're happy. You don't care why you thought about the periods. You don't even have not thought about other punctuation. The other things we've talked about, maybe you haven't given any thought to. You just want to fix the dent in the car so it'll resell better. Hmm. And I understand you've been driven to that by our, the entire uh, force of our culture, but it is value judgment coming it is damaging to a student to be taught to think that way yeah yeah absolutely and you know there's it's again it's there's sort of this inextricable um relationship between an intrinsic and extrinsic value and i'm experiencing that as a student right um you know certainly part of the reason that i'm in a phd program right now is because I was in the army and the army decreased the the monetary requirements needed for me to pursue this level of education. Mm-hmm. And then within that, you know, colleges have programs, right? So when I selected a PhD program in my instance, I wasn't thinking at all of what job this can get me or anything. I I literally looked through many different PhD programs and found the one with the, the highest number of classes that I thought would be interesting and challenging to me. <laughs> and then I went after that one and I had to jump through some hoops to get accepted into the program because it wasn't, um, it didn't line up with my master's degree before and these sorts of things. But the way that I've approached a lot of these things um, is, you know, regardless of subject matter to say, well, there's probably something interesting and valuable to learn here, even if it's something that on face on face value, I'd say, well, you know, I, I'm not sure if I'm going to yes. find yes. this class interesting. Right. So in that regard, even the intrinsic value has some leeway. So there's some shifting there. Yes, so there is. that creates that question. Is that value right? Even that intrinsic value, is it something that's set or is it something that's constantly sort of shifting, right? And socially, it's, it's something that's constantly shifting. I mean, Google, I was just reading this past weekend, the, the Google certificate, which is this monumentally restructuring thing in some ways for colleges, community colleges. You can earn the Google certificate. Uh, the equivalent of, I think, four or five classes of credit in college. But the Google certificate will then put you, it says, in the front of the line for guaranteed work at Google, in IT or software, any of those things. And gee, you don't have to pay a lot of money for it. And, and, And there it is. Now, is that college? No, college colleges will offer it because it will bring in more people because it's the consumer enterprise. But but ultimately, that what your PhD is worth monetarily, what it is worth to you as an individual human being, what it is worth to the work situation in the in the country, all of those are different things, and and people have been taught to think that all education is about is being able to have a better paycheck. And I understand why people want better paychecks, and they bloody well deserve them because we're still a 1970s and 80s pay level for most human beings. But that's not the primary reason for education. That is technical training, and there's a vast difference between the two things. Think about how students are are taught to devalue of I'm going to get this out of the way. I'm going to get that out of the way. It's the the object. Move the boulder. I don't want to take this class, but I got it because they told me. And more and more of that is beginning to shift as, as colleges are acquiescing to consumer demand. So, gee, maybe I won't have to take all of those other things. Maybe I won't have to think about anything except the thing that I want to think about, which is the job. Which means essentially you're being taught to specialize early in one particular field 
Okay, but we have a culture that doesn't value specialization. We have a culture right now politically, socially, that is that is trashing the idea of being specialized and having specialized knowledge. The country doesn't want to hear it. A lot of the population doesn't want to hear that you know more about something than they do. So at one and the same time, we have this, these conflicting values. We say we value education, but we don't value specialization. We say we value a high paycheck, which comes from a highly specialized job, but we don't value the knowledge that you were actually supposed to do and your use and, and draw upon. <laughs> yeah, and, and where this is leading us, and it'll be a, a good thing to pick up on in another episode, is the idea of valuing agencies accrediting agencies you hear about um moody's or somebody evaluating um the uh how good the u.s debt is right and what sort of criteria are they using or you have an accrediting agency for a college right how, how are they deciding that what you're doing is is noteworthy and these are definitely value judgments and like you said, it's it's almost a, a macrocosm of what you were doing as a teacher assigning grades, right? Mm -hmm. And is it a subjective judgment? Yes. So you have these accrediting agencies that are trying to decide, trying to give a an objective rating or grade to institutions and countries, right? Based on an incredibly complicated rubric. They have those, these agencies. Right. But do people understand the rubric? Are they interested in the rubric? Yeah. It's, uh, it creates all kinds of, of interesting questions. Um, and I'm sure we're going to explore many of them in the future. But until next time, keep on. Right.